Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. The SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during this work-from-home period in lieu of our global conference series, the SALT Conference. And really, our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts that are leading investors, creators, and thinkers, and also to provide a platform for big, important ideas that we think are changing and shaping the world. But we're very pleased today to welcome uh, Secretary Kirsten M. Nielsen to SALT Talks. Uh, Secretary Nielsen is an internationally recognized expert and proven leader on critical security issues facing governments and institutions. Uh, her breadth of experience stands at a crossroads of policy, strategy, and operations, so it's a very apt guest for our SALT Talk series. Uh, and she provides a unique perspective across complex enterprise environments uh, and influencing her, position, influencing her position on the importance of stakeholder engagement, the role of technology as a force multiplier, and the need to address today's threats while still assessing and preparing for those of tomorrow. Uh, Secretary Nielsen was sworn in as the sixth secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security in December of 2017. I believe we were talking to Secretary Nielsen uh, before uh, we went live, and we asked, did you overlap at all with Anthony? And, and she remarked that she actually did overlap with Anthony for about half of a day. Uh, she, she walked in with Secretary, or excuse me, General Kelly, uh, the day that he was sworn in. And the next thing he did after being sworn in was uh, he walked downstairs and fired Anthony. So hopefully we can get a little bit of a conversation about that during today's talk. That's, Anyways, that's, during fake, that's fake news. He didn't walk downstairs. He went from the Oval Office to his office. He called me in and then he fired me. Don't give out there fake were no news. Stairs. There were no stairs. Talks. Okay, there were but, no stairs. Uh, during okay, are you enjoying? Break, are you enjoying yourself by telling that story? I figured I had to bring it up. Um, All right, go ahead. Go ahead. Enjoy during yourself, her tenure, Darcy. This, this is about Secretary Nielsen, Anthony. Please let me just get. Up. Let me just get Skybridge payroll on the phone here. Just, yeah, that that cut for John Darcy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that after this is over. Okay, keep going, Darcy. Go ahead. She directed during her tenure uh, widespread actions to increase the security and resilience of the nation against evolving threats across, across land, air, sea, and the cyber domain, which is something we'll, we'll get into in depth today. Uh, she was previously commissioned to serve as the White House Principal Deputy Chief of Staff and the DHS Chief of Staff. Uh, Secretary Nielsen has also advised government agencies, private sector companies, international organizations, and NGOs on assessing their risk posture and increasing their resiliency, developing crisis communication plans, and understanding various policy environments and identifying and mitigating hazards. Uh, she's the former president and founder of Sunasys, which is a security management firm, and she currently serves as the president of Lighthouse Strategies. A reminder, if you have any questions for Secretary Nielsen during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And now I will turn it over to the aforementioned Anthony Scaramucci, the one-time uh, White House communications director. He's also the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm, and the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll kick it to Anthony. Well, uh, uh, thanks, John. But the one thing you mentioned that you forgot to mention, which is also important to all of us, is that uh, Secretary Nielsen joined us in Abu Dhabi uh, last December, where you gave a masterful performance on so many different things, masterful dissertation on cybersecurity, et cetera. So I want to get into a little bit of that with you this afternoon. But before we go there, Madam Secretary, uh, take us back uh, into your background, your college years, uh, and the odyssey that you took prior to becoming the 
Secretary for the Department of Homeland Security. First of all, what a pleasure to, to see you all. It's uh, it's both exciting when video works uh, and when we have the opportunity uh, to see other humans. So thanks for, for pulling this together. Uh, you know, Homeland Security at, at a high level, at least the way I think of it, is a, it's a team sport. I mean, there's just way too many threats uh, that we face today that are constantly emerging for any one entity to be able to address them. I mean, no one entity has all of the capabilities, capacities, authorities, resources. When I look back, uh, what I did rather unintentionally, because of course we didn't necessarily have a discipline called Homeland Security until after 9-11, but looking back, I, I tried to play every role, every position, if you will, in the team that is Homeland Security. So I worked on the Hill, uh, I'm a lawyer by training, I helped private sector companies uh, that provide technologies and services to the federal government. I helped private sector companies protect themselves uh, and, and understand how to do that and protect their customers, clients, and functions. I played different roles in the government, the executive branch, uh, worked with international organizations, allies, really trying to pull together that whole concept of public-private partnership. Um, and then, of course, after 9-11, I helped uh, start up TSA, which was then in the Department of Transportation, and then went to the White House. And so between the multiple of roles, uh, much of the early Homeland Security Doctrine, I either uh, led the development of uh, or was, was very intimately involved in directly. So uh, very familiar. It's a very broad, broad mission space, as you know. But, but it's by and large, Madam Secretary, it's, it's been very successful because if it, the precursor of it was 9-11. It's been 19 years since that tragedy. And I would say that we've done a reasonably good job of containing terrorism, reasonably good job of uh, eliminating internal threats in, in the United States. Uh, what were some of the main threats and issues that you were focusing on when you were the secretary? Yeah, so it's it's always a great question, and I, uh, you know me, I love to to talk, but this is a particular one where it's hard to be brief. Uh, you know, DHS is the third largest uh, department in our government, two hundred forty thousand uh, law enforcement, civilian, and military employees. Uh, it spans everything from counter counter terrorism, as you mentioned, uh, to a branch of the U.S. military. We have the, the Coast Guard proudly is, is in the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we respond to natural disasters. We prevent uh, activists, terrorists from uh, different kinds of soft target attacks. So it's very broad. And then there's all sorts of parts that we don't talk about as much election security. We might talk about that today, but that's certainly an expansion of the mission space. Uh, and so we, under my watch, we really focused on what are the emerging threats. You know, we need to double down on today's threats, but how can we look at the horizon? What should we be anticipating? So I spent a lot of time on new explosive devices uh, that had been developed by those who seek to do us harm in the aviation sector. Obviously spent a lot on cyber, uh, worked with Congress to get some authority to counter drones, uh, which are ubiquitous now, unfortunately, and uh, we really need to all come together and uh, figure out how to address that. A WMD, unfortunately, there are still new and developing weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we gotta make sure we stay on top of that. Um, we also did quite a bit to change the authorities. A focus of mine was to make sure with this expanding mission space that the employees and great men and women of DHS really had the tools and resources and authorities they needed. So we worked with Congress to create the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. 
uh, which I'm very proud of. We actually did uh, create a WMD entity. We strengthened uh, other entities that existed. And then we did a lot of policy changes to make sure that all across the homeland and with our international partners, we raised the bar uh, of security in, in every realm that we touch. So quite a few things, but I would just say at a high level, it's so important in this day and age to really keep your eye on that horizon and be very aware of the emerging threats because once they're here, it's too late. It's too late. Bureaucracy does not move quickly enough. So you have to be able to anticipate. So so, so let's go right into the cybersecurity space then. How, how, how do you feel we are in terms of cybersecurity, private, public, governmental cybersecurity? And then secondary to that, uh, what are your thoughts on addressing the risk of things like TikTok or Zoom, facial recognition, Huawei, sort of in the umbrella of cybersecurity? Yeah, you know, at a high level, um, at a high level, I would say that we have made tremendous progress uh, over the last, uh, you know, four, five, six years uh, with respect to cybersecurity. We we really needed to take the time to set the roles and responsibilities uh, within the U.S. context of who was going to do what, who is best positioned to do what, and strengthen that public-private partnership. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I just was part of a, a group that was advising uh, Australia as they work to put out their new cybersecurity strategy. And the debates are the same, you know, everywhere in the world. How do we better share information? How do we make our response more automatic? You know, what should the government be doing vis-a-vis -vis the private sector and vice versa? What do citizens need to do? I think the difficulty with cyber is that it's a true weak link problem. Right. I mean, you can do everything that an expert would tell you to do to protect your own system, but ultimately it's only going to be as secure as the systems that touch yours. Right. So we all have to a collective defense model is really what we're talking about when we talk about cyber. Your risk is mine. My risk is now your risk. And that's very different than in the traditional physical world. So we have to continue to expand. Uh, there's a lot more that we need to do. I, was, I really personally welcomed the work that the Cyber Solarium did. Um, I'm anxious to see many of their recommendations adopted in the NDAA. I hope that they are. Uh, we really did need to pause and, and assess where we are, and I think they did a, a tremendous job. With respect to the, the tech that you brought up, it's so interesting because it's, it's a great list in that they're all so different. I mean, my short answer would be, we have to look at all of these from a risk management perspective. So if you look at something like Zoom, you know, that's a perfect example, among other things, of a uh, risk around concentrated dependency, right? When we all are depending on Zoom for our daily lives, for conferences, for the work that we do, for education, uh, it puts tremendous, not only strain on the infrastructure bandwidth, if you will, but it also opens up a new vulnerability because if Zoom should go down uh, or something like that, then we have tremendous ripple effects in terms of uh, everyone's ability to function. If you look at something like facial rec, that's very interesting because as a sort of a disruptive and still in some minds, cutting edge technology throughout the world, we don't yet have the legal and regulatory frameworks in place for customers and the public to feel comfortable that facial rec is doing what it should and not doing what it shouldn't do, that it's protecting our privacy uh, and that it is being used in appropriate manner. So it puts stress on the system and the companies to say, okay, how can we demonstrate we're being good citizens? 
it's an interesting example because you've seen all of the big companies that use facial rec actually go to governments and say, please regulate us, please pass a law. You know, we want something to be able to measure it against to show. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else is on your list. Huawei and TikTok, I mean, you know, I, I read somewhere the other day, somebody was asking, well, you know, is this, or is this really about China or is it really about the technologies? I think the answer is yes and yes. They're very different technologies. One is more of a supply chain risk uh, and perhaps the ability and control that gives to the Chinese government by virtue of the infrastructure. And the other is uh, a similar problem, but a very different risk. It's more about data uh, geo-targeting, uh, you know, keystrokes and who then would have access to that data. Uh, but I think as citizens and particularly as a government, we have to look at each one of these technologies within some sort of a risk framework and then figure out the best way to, to mitigate and manage it. You know, you, you, you mentioned in Abu Dhabi something that, that sort of stuck with me. I'm going to see if I get it right. You basically said that data and identity are the two currencies of the future. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and how are they in danger effectively? Yeah, data, so I, you know, and to be even more specific on the data front, I, I really think it's, it's um, if you will, it's data quantity uh, and data speed, perhaps in particular, that will absolutely be traded as, as new currencies. Companies will, will rise and fall based, based on those concepts. And of course, the, the related concept that data without insight is, is noise. There's so much data out there that if whatever it is that you're doing, providing, integrating, doesn't have that analytical piece, uh, it doesn't mean anything. But back to data. I think it's that it it runs everything we do. It runs uh, the SCADA systems that run all of our critical functions. Uh, it enables us to relate to one another. Uh, it manages the way that we see the world. Uh, it really is sort of the lifeblood of how our society functions digitally these days. The reason it's at risk is because of the, the exact same reason. I mean, we we spent years talking about data confidentiality. Uh, and rightly so, and we still should, right? protecting our data and ensuring that we understand who has access to it for what purpose. But the concepts of integrity and availability we have seen uh, come to the fore over the last three to four years in a way that many did not expect between ransomware attacks, wiper attacks, um, and just anything that questions the integrity of information. You know, I, I often feel that reality itself these days is up for debate, right? Between geo-spoofing, between deep fakes, between, and that's even before we get to issues with sure. uh, foreign interference. So if what you see is not necessarily true, if what you read is not necessarily true, then what, what does that mean? And of course, take it another level. If, if we had false data fed into you know, through an injection or other, uh, a supervisor and control system, the function would, perform as it should, but not the way we want it to perform. That's, of course, what we worry about when we talk about electricity and water, et cetera. On identity, you know, identity is interesting because we have a real question about identity these days. Do you own your identity? Now, you know, I, I don't know. And I think we're seeing that in COVID. Um, there certainly can is a strong argument from a public health perspective that at some point here, if this virus continues on the propagation path it is, that governments around the world will want to understand who has it, who has been tested, who has recovered for purposes of protecting others. 
But if you think of it in that context, you, those attributes that are once personal to you uh, are now could be uh, by some countries' propositions owned and operated, if you will, by a government entity. So what, what does that mean? How do you prove your you, Anthony? Right? If someone else popped up, or look at the Twitter hijacking that just occurred. You know, how do you how do you demonstrate that you are who you who you say you are? You are saying what you're saying, and that brings in the deep fakes and other things. And putting aside all the mis possible misinterpretation uh, in the press and, and other places. So there's a real need for new technology to authenticate you and to be able to you know, sort of audit the identity, if you will, so that we can be confident we're talking to Anthony as opposed oh, to- I, I just want you to know that situation that happened when I was the White House Communications, right? That was a deep fake, Madam <laughs> Secretary. I just, I mean, no, no one realized that at the time. I just, yeah, I just thought I would throw that out there, but uh, but but in, in any event, I totally get what you're saying. And, and I think it's a, uh, it's, it's got to be a concern if you're a civil libertarian and you want to protect people's privacy and the privacy of their health. Obviously, all the stuff that we try to do to do that as well. But then the flip side is, particularly with a pandemic going on, you, you know, it could be helpful in containing the pandemic if we know where people stand related to that disease. So it's, it's going to be a struggle. I want, I, I want to uh, flip to something that I, I would love to give you an opportunity to comment on, and that is... Uh, the president's policy related to separating families at the border, which became a hot button issue during your time as secretary. And I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to address some of that, and potentially some of the misconceptions around it. And I would also be remiss if I didn't ask about DACA and what you what do you believe should happen next? Uh, let's see. So let me take the last one first. Um, I, you know, we, it, it's time. It's so past time. I mean, from the moment that I was going through the confirmation process until now, I firmly believe personally that it's time to give the DACA population a permanent status. And the debate back and forth between the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch is not helping any of the DACA recipients. It's time for Congress to act and give them a status. The, the, the misconception that is very unfortunate is that with the recent Supreme Court ruling, there is a belief that Supreme Court ruled in favor of DACA. I don't know what that means. All the Supreme Court did was say that the DACA status for now will continue, but that's not a status. It's a deferred prosecution. So they still do not have access to some of the benefits that they would have if they had a permanent status. They still don't have access to some of the assistance programs. So I won't soapbox on it too much, but it, it's time for Congress to act. I mean, it's just time to, to do it. And it's if you talk to most folks politically, it's not, there are some that disagree with that statement for sure. I, I do think the vast majority agree with it. It's just a clear, unfortunately, it's an, an abdication of congressional responsibility. Uh, Congress passes laws on immigration and Congress needs to do that. So. Um, Doc, I feel very, very strongly we're, we're way past. So, so, so do you predict that that will happen or you think we'll be in a stalemate for an interminable period of time? Yeah, I'd like I'd like to say that I was hopeful. I, I'd, I'd like to, uh, in, in an optimistic moment, believe that that nothing is too hard for the, the Congress of the United States of America to handle. 
but I, I, you know, I'm also a, a bit of a realist on this, and we've seen the inaction now for for years and years and years. I think what it will take is either a next action by the president, uh, which I have no insight into, but he has said that he will do something on DACA. Uh, or another court case. Uh, there's still other other lawsuits out there, to my knowledge, and one or more could be a trigger event that then will push Congress to act. You hope it doesn't take that, uh, and you hope if it if it does take that, it all happens quickly. But I, I think anybody that actually cares in any way about that population should continue to put pressure on Congress so that Congress can fix it. The other question you asked, uh, you know, is a larger. Uh, it's a much larger issue, and uh, you know, bear, bear with me, let me just try to, to frame it a, a little bit. Um, immigration in general is very complex. It's not well understood. You know, I found many, many times people wanted a binary answer and the difficulty is often it, it's not. It's a patchwork of rules. It's terribly, terribly broken system. Uh, the incentives are wrong. Anyway, we, we, we should have a system where we can protect the sovereignty of this country and protect vulnerable populations. We should be able to counter drugs and counter criminals while also welcoming those who seek asylum. And, and by the way, in the context of all of that, we, we should be able to welcome legal immigrants. I mean, that's what our country is. It's what makes us strong. I know many of us believe that, but we need to, to separate the two. Uh, one shouldn't necessarily uh, reflect directly on the other. So with the families, the, the truth is uh, there was no policy to separate families. And let me walk you through, but let me tell you why that's really personally important to me. I was, uh, such a policy was requested of me. Uh, it was requested of General Kelly as well uh, when he was secretary and we both just missed it out of hand. Uh, there was no direction to separate families who legally entered the United States. What happened is the attorney general in seeing an increase in law breaking, because it is a law to enter the United States between ports of entry, a law that Congress has continued to uphold. As he saw that law, the increases of that law being broken, he decided to increase the law enforcement of that law. And so he put out a policy of zero tolerance, meaning that the prosecutions should be done to anybody who chose to break that law, in this case, entering the United States legally, illegally. So the rest of us then were in discussions of, well, how, how do we do that? It requires a tremendous amount of resources given the numbers at that time of those entering illegally. And the truth of it is that if somebody came in illegally with a child, as that adult went to a prosecutorial setting, we don't send children to jail in the United States. In, in most places, there are very limited circumstances for that, but there is no way uh, to do that within the immigration setting. So what happens is after a certain period of time, if the adult does not come back from prosecution, uh, the child is sent to the, the Department of Health and Human Services. And again, that's, that's by law, that's, that's not a choice. So the family separations resulted from the fact that a law was broken, an adult was being prosecuted, and the children as a result had to go into a, a different setting, the family was thereby separated. The, the, and, and let me just stress, the, the reason it's so important to me personally that it not be called a policy is because there are still those today who advocate for a policy of family separation. What that would look like is, any family that was encountered anywhere in the United States or at a legal port of entry 
would be separated by virtue of the fact that they presented as a family unit. That is, that is not a policy that has been adopted in the United States and one that I will continue uh, in any way that I can as a civilian uh, citizen now to, uh, to, to be against. I, I just think that's entirely and completely wrong. So what, what went wrong? What went wrong is that we, the three agencies, departments that are responsible for this, which is the Department of Justice, HHS and DHS, we did not have the resources needed to quickly and efficiently prosecute the adults and either reunite or keep the families together in the sense that the child would, or children would be uh, would not yet have been sent to HHS. And when that became clear, when it became clear that those resources were not there, uh, you know, I did advocate with uh, the president to end the practice, and and he did. Um, it was a, a terrible period uh, for all involved, uh, but it has been made more difficult by the fact that there is so much misunderstanding about it. At the end of the day, it's a law enforcement decision. We were a law enforcement agency and law enforcement officials enforce the law. Well, and, and I think it's a big learning lesson for everybody on this uh, SALT talk that you have uh, a lot of different interagency decisions that are going on, a lot of different policies. And sometimes the government is ponderous and uh, it's obviously imperfect as all human beings are. I want to ask a follow-up question if that's okay. Uh, Not that this is even possible, but I'm just curious about your ideas. Let's say you were a policy czar or you were somebody that could create policy to prevent this from happening. Maybe you could do it through the, the Congress or et cetera. What would your recommendation be based on your experiences in this uh, issue? Yeah, I mean, I think, so again, it, it all, let me try to be uh, succinct because it is very complex. I, I, nobody who cares about a migrant should ever encourage them in any way, indirectly or directly, to cross into the United States illegally. And the reason I say that is because the way the vast vast majority of those who travel that way do it at the hands of smugglers transnational criminal organizations and others who prey on them i mean they're not dhs figures when the doctors without borders say that you know three two-thirds to three-quarters of the women are raped along that journey uh, it's not us. Uh, it's the NGO community who says that you know children are recruited into gangs, people are attacked for their organs. I mean, it's a very, very dangerous, very, very dangerous journey. So the way the system should work is if you need to claim asylum or you have another legal right to come to the United States, you should go to a port of entry where you can be documented as entering legally. Uh, and you can go into a process. If we do not have the resources we need at the ports of entry, that's what we should fix. But we ended up in a situation where, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy catch 22 uh, to, to be in. You know, on one hand, you, the one hand, the Department of Homeland Security is the biggest law enforcement agency in the world. And what happens there is we all take an oath, we all take an oath to enforce the law. So you have one side of the debate saying you you must enforce the law, and if you don't force it, you know if you don't force it enough, uh, if you will, you're you're soft on uh, law enforcement, you're soft on immigration, you are not following the law in that you're choosing to to not enforce it. 
on the other side, you have, you have those in Congress and others who, rather than doing their job, tell another branch of government, you don't enforce the law. It's, it's too hard for us to fix it, essentially. So just you don't enforce it. And that, when you step back, Anthony, that's crazy. That's got to be right. the beginning of the unraveling of a democracy. When you have Congress saying, right, the executive branch, just don't enforce the law. So I, what I would do is I would ensure that we have enough resources at the courts. I would revise the way that we do asylum. You know, one of my big pushes was I don't understand why we can't help protect vulnerable populations sooner in their journey. Why do we make them come all the way to the U.S. border? You know, why, why couldn't we find a way for them to go to an embassy or other safe place along their journey to make their case for asylum along the way? I mean, the system itself doesn't make any sense if you're trying to protect vulnerable populations. So I spent a tremendous amount of time in the Northern Triangle working with those countries. Uh, we signed quite a few agreement, agreements to protect children, to protect families, to protect those from smugglers and traffickers. Uh, and all of that needs to be cemented. That cooperation needs to be cemented so that we can help them protect vulnerable populations. But it, it's past time. Congress needs to fix it. I mean, there's been lots of legislation floating back and forth. Let's just do it. So once again, it's just fascinating. It's back to c congressional inertia. Uh, if you notice, I've been big footing John Darcy since he mentioned my firing. So <laughs> I'm going to ask one more question before I turn it over to him. And I want to go to Portland, Oregon. And the acting DH secretary has marshaled unmarked law enforcement to put down some of the protests in Portland. And I was just wondering what your response would have been, same or different than the approach that the administration is currently taking. So, I, you know, this is another example where just watching it, uh, there seems to be a, a lot of uh, misunderstanding. And then I think like most Americans trying to understand what exactly is happening. What I can tell you is that uh, it is a part of the mission set of the Department of Homeland Security to protect federal facilities. There's an entire operating agency within DHS called the Federal Protective Service, and that, that's their mission. Uh, the law says DHS shall, it, it's not voluntary. Uh, so, so that part, uh, that part of the mission exists. Uh, what happens next and how far that authority goes uh, you know, I, again, I'm not, I, I'm not as familiar with the specific facts on the ground, but I do think it's important to start by saying where the mission is. Um, in my opinion, you know, that the mission should be limited uh, to what the mission is. And then in a traditional law enforcement way, we support state and locals upon request uh, for other, other mission sets within, within our authorities. I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding around what's marked and what's not marked. Uh, you know, I, the, the uniforms of the folks from DHS, uh, who at least I've viewed in the news, you know, that is, that is the uniform that some of the uh, unique law enforcement entities within DHS wear. They, they're marked police, they, they have patches. Um, the ones who are in fatigues, it looks to me like they're, they're part of a border unit. Um, and that, that's what they wear every day at the, at the border. Um, to, to blend in. So there, there's a lot of misunderstanding, but I think to me, mostly what this shows is the very important need for state and local governments and law enforcement to find a way to work with the federal government and vice versa. You know, I can tell you in 2018, we had an ICE facility, we still do, uh, in that area. And we did have some protesters. It, it had been under attack and about 28 days in, uh, we 
acted through law enforcement, our federal law enforcement means to sort of protect the building. But that was because the local law enforcement and political leadership uh, would not would not do that. And somebody had to protect the employees who were just trying to do their job and get into work. So I, I have not talked to the mayor. I haven't talked to the political leadership, obviously, within Portland. I, I don't know what the actual situation is there, but I would just offer that law enforcement needs to be provided to all communities within a community. And in this case, if that's not occurring, part of the federal mission of the federal government is to protect federal buildings and those inside. So we'll have to see how it, how it works, what happens next. Uh, but I do think we have to start with what, what are the facts and then let's try to understand that the best way to, to move forward. There's also a huge difference, by the way, between the peaceful protesters. Uh, I mean, my understanding of, of what the, some of the press is describing is, is the violence or what appears to be violent activity is happening at night. During the day, it looks like there are peaceful protesters um, exercising their First Amendment rights. And then there is another, either a separate group or a different time of the day at night when uh, they are, uh, they do throw things uh, at the buildings. Uh, they're using firecrackers or using frozen water bottles. They're trying to attack. Uh, and, and, you know, again, we do not, violence is violence, hate is hate. It doesn't have any place. Uh, so we should all be working together to limit that. And and, and you didn't mention the uh, terrorist attack by Timothy McVeigh 25 years ago on a federal building in Oklahoma, which is one of the main reasons why you have to have some level of security around these buildings. But, uh, uh, okay, I'm dominating the conversation, Madam Secretary. So I have to turn it over to the erstwhile John Darcy, and he's got a whole series of questions that are coming in from our uh, our audience. So go ahead, John. Yeah, uh, I want to pivot to COVID uh, for a moment. And I think it's fair to say, you know, as a society, both on the government level and, and how they've interacted with the private sector, our response to the virus has been somewhat discombobulated is the nice word I'll use. You know, how do we need to re-examine how governments and private sector companies execute risk assessments and, and manage risk in today's environment using something like a pandemic as, as a example. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, hand-wringing about President Trump's decision regarding the Defense Production Act and whether he should invoke it. But what do we need to do to be more prepared you know, for future pandemics and for similar types of situations that might arise in the homeland that might require a more coordinated response? Yeah, I mean, this is... Uh... Uh, so, first of all, I, I look forward to, I'm sure there will be various entities that do a, a lessons learned review, and I do think that'll be extraordinarily important to more tactically and technically answer your question, which is, do, do we have the right entities? Do they have the right authorities? Do we have the right mechanisms in place? What I would say is, you know, there are a couple different things at play here. One, uh, unfortunately, is a lack of information. You know, risk assessments and risk management really only work when you have data. When you don't, when the basis of a risk management uh, profile is uncertainty itself, it's very difficult. It, it's very difficult. And I think we've seen that with the markets. I mean, the markets crave data to the extent that the data keeps changing. Uh, you know, the markets have a hard time interpreting that. Uh, just just as every citizen in every country does as they try to make their own risk assessment each day as to what to do, what to engage in, whether to wear a mask. So first of all, the, the data is very important. And, uh, you know, I think we will uh, we will find out more about 
the data that's available as we go forward. But you know, I would just offer that it's really important with a pandemic or any sort of cascading event to understand its origin and to very quickly share that information in a transparent way so that others can prepare and respond. And I think the delay with getting the information from China certainly has contributed to this. Uh, the delay in calling it pandemic certainly has contributed to this. Uh, the debates between international organizations with respect to the epidemiology sort of leads all of us scratching our heads as to, well, what, what should we do? What, what's the answer? Uh, I think the, uh, the asymptomatic transmission has caught many off guard. That wasn't necessarily something we heard a lot about, say, in February or March. So as we learn more, the way in which we respond should change. But again, that adds another level of uncertainty, right? Why are we, why are we changing the way that we do this as we go? I, you know, I think we're also seeing federalism play out. Uh, you know, we, we've got a, it's the age old debate in any Homeland Security or other national security event, who's on first? Who's on first? Who's in charge? What are they doing? And we're seeing that, you know, play out at state and local levels. Uh, we're seeing that play out between state and local levels. And then we're seeing that private sector. You mentioned the DPA. And that's where that mix hits of what should the private sector be doing? What does the federal government and other governments have access to? Um, so it's a, you asked me so much in the question, I'm trying to get to it all. But I, on the business side, I would just say, you know, we all have to be adaptable. I mean, this is, is demonstrating that if part of your business plan, if part of your culture is not to anticipate and adapt, you're, you're not going to survive. You won't have a sustainable business model. So, and some companies have done that quite well. I think we've seen that. Others are, are slow. Whole industries are, are slow to adjust. But this is a difficult event because the orientation, very much like a, a mass-scale cyber event, the orientation, if you will, of left and right of boom doesn't exist. It's not a hurricane that comes and goes. It's not a a chemical attack that, that comes and, and, and goes, although chemical attacks, of course, have, have lasting, event, lasting effects as do recovery from hurricane. But this is much more an active situation. We're very similar to what I would tell you in cyber. It, we have to look at it more for how long can we withstand attack, if you will, right? If this is a new normal, how do we learn to innovate while under attack? I mean, that's something I would see in cybersecurity, but is very applicable here because it's an ongoing event. So how do you adjust in midstream? And then from a re resilience perspective, you know, that's really where we're all headed. We can't prepare for everything. We, we have to focus on being resilient. And part of what that means is not only learning to innovate while under attack, but learning how to bounce forward. It's not just bounce back. What can we do to anticipate tomorrow while we're addressing today? So I, I think the orientations have to change or we, we won't be able to continue to, to, you know, to move forward and pick a, pick a topic, whether it's education, whether it's work, uh, whether it's different industries, whether it's government. I want to pivot to another question uh, from the audience. It's about electric uh, election security, excuse me, and, and hacking. So uh, our intelligence agencies basically produced a report after the 2016 election that, that confirmed that there was interference in our election, uh, mainly from Russia. And there's early reports heading into the 2020 election that there seem to be similar ambitions from Russia and other actors to interfere in our elections. You know, from my perspective, this is a bipartisan issue today. You know, those uh, that interference could be taking place on the side of one party. Tomorrow, it could be taking place on the side of another party. 
what do we need to do to secure our elections? And how worried are you about the 2020 election and the threat of hacking, uh, cyber warfare and interference? First of all, I'm, ha- I'm happy to say we are vastly more prepared uh, from an election security perspective uh, than we were for the last presidential election. Uh, the 2018 election were, was a great sort of midpoint in, in the preparedness. Uh, but I think as you described, there's two, two sort of separate parts of it. One is the hacking, if you will, uh, to, to generically uh, use that term, of the systems, of the infrastructure of the elections. And that, that's a role that DHS plays in terms of helping state and locals prepare and prevent uh, any nefarious activity. The other part is the malign uh, interference uh, from foreign governments. Uh, the FBI has lead on that. That's the misinformation campaigns. Uh, DHS and the rest of the interagency support them in that, but there, there's two parts to it. So on the first part, the, the DHS role, you know, DHS is working with over 6,000 jurisdictions, they're working with all 50 states. We have sensors in all 50 states. DHS has a whole panoply of tools that they're offering. Uh, CISA and, and Director Krebs have, have just done tremendous work in building the partnerships and taking time to understand how individual states do elections to make sure that they have what they need. Uh, in support. On the foreign interference side, you know, my personal opinion is, look, the, we got to shine the sunlight. You know, if, if somebody tells me something, if I read something and somebody says, okay, your, your neighbor, your good friend just said that, I will think of it one way. If I read that exact same thing and then you say to me, John, okay, that was written by a Russian bot or that was uh, written by the Chinese government, I'm going to feel differently about it. It's the exact same sentence though, or piece of paper information. So the more that we can communicate and declassify in appropriate ways the intel to help Americans understand that there is a misinformation campaign, then hopefully Americans will take the time to look at sources and really think through what it is they're reading. Uh, but, but we have to do that part. We have to raise the awareness to help them know the job that, that we expect them to do. We have two more questions and then we'll let you go. We have a ton of engagement from the audience, which we really appreciate. Uh, as, the, as Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, you deal with uh, both threats, both foreign and domestic. And there's, there's been a rise in homebred militia type groups that have uh, felt empowered to go out and try to so in, enforce some, some semblance of law enforcement on a private basis. Does that concern you, you know, as, as a former government official, uh, the idea that, that some of these threats we're facing now are more uh, homegrown and domestic? Absolutely. In fact, I, uh, one of the things while I was secretary, I did was I asked that all of our strategies that addressed Islamic extremism be expanded to address targeted violence in general, uh, to include domestic extremists. Uh, again, under that theory I mentioned earlier, not theory, but belief that, that hate is hate. Uh, violence is violence. It does not have any place. It does not have a place in our society. So, uh, DHS has undergone, uh, you know, a lot of uh, policy and strategy work to expand the aperture, if you will, to make sure that they include domestic terrorists and other targeted um, hate groups along and in conjunction with the, the partners at the FBI and state locals. But uh, abs- I would say absolutely because it it is a different type of pernicious threat. It's not a threat emanating if it's if it's domestic in the way I think you meant. It's not necessarily a threat emanating from over there, right? It's it's within our cultures, within our societies, within the schools, within and so the, right. the 
leadership that's required to address that uh, needs needs to be expanded. But yes, I, I remain very concerned about it. So the last question we'll ask you is: uh, There are some former members of the Trump administration that have that have had commentary about the way things have worked internally. And we're not going to sit here and, and ask you who you're voting for or something like that. But as we evaluate leaders going forward in this country, what are the types of qualities uh, that you look for uh, in a leader, especially for a president of the United States? Well, that's a great question. And I, I hope all Americans really take it to heart and really do their, their homework and really think through at, at the federal, state, and local level who they're going to vote for in this next election. I mean, I think we need to look at what's happening. Uh, we need to, to, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's um, the, uh, well, there's so many, many issues. I won't take all the time. You know what they are. But when we look at them all, we have to think about who is best to lead us through it and to continue to help us all recover and move forward. And my experience with this is, you know, we have a real uh, institutional memory problem in government right now. There's been so much turnover um, personally, you know, I think some of the issues in the interagency with respect to the pandemic is just there's not very many people left who were there from the extensive planning that was done in 2005, 2006 and under the last administration. And so the continuity, the understanding of government, how it works, the laws, the restrictions, the international partnerships, all of that is part and parcel with governing. Uh, and we have to make sure that we, we elect leaders uh, who have those capabilities uh, who understand. I know many have come on uh, SALT Talks and talked about the importance of former vets or of vets, of former military members. Uh, and I think that's because they, they do have that. They're schooled in that. They're trained in that. But it's not just that. It, it's people who have taken the time to understand how our constitution works, how federalism works, uh, and how that plays out within a, a given construct. Uh, you know, we have to during a crisis, you have to be crisis ready. You have to have a, a persona, personality, and ability uh, to stay steady through a crisis. My biggest fear right now is in the middle of corona, something else will happen, right? We'll have a Cat 5 hurricane, or we'll have another pandemic, or a nation state will choose to look at our weakness and decide that it's time to be more aggressively attack, uh, or a terrorist organization. So you, you, have, to, you have to have steady leaders uh, that have the knowledge and, and the ability to lead. And so I, as we all look towards this election in the fall, I hope everyone does their homework and, and really gives it a good thing. It's important. Well, Secretary Nielsen, thanks so much for joining us. Anthony, you have any final word for the secretary? We're very grateful for your time. Oh, we, 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 we appreciate your time, Secretary Nielsen. Uh, if I didn't get John in there, I would have had to hear it later in the day. So thank you for tolerating him and his questions. Uh, but in the meantime, I hope we can get you back to one of our live events, uh, which we expect to kick off again as soon as the uh, pandemic is over. But, but with that, thank you so much. And uh, we hope to see you soon. Oh, my pleasure to you both. Thank you so much.